Revelation chapter 17. We began our study of chapter 17, 18, and part of 19 last week looking at the fall of Babylon and the exaltation of the bride. And we have a lot of territory to cover in these chapters. So this morning, I want to jump right in and just take the first six verses, and then we'll set a little bit of a context and then look at these in detail. So John writes at the beginning of the chapter, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, the seven bowls of judgment that have already been poured out, came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. It had seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery. Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes, and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. That is quite an intense vision that John is seeing. When I was pastoring in North Carolina years ago, there were three men and their wives who began attending our church all at the same time. They had all been members of another church in town where they had shared the responsibility of leading a large adult Sunday school class. So it was not a small matter when all three of them who had charge of this large class uh, left that church and began attending our church. Well, what would have made them all leave the church at the same time? Well, in the course of several years at that church, these men had literally taught through the entire Bible. In their Sunday school class, book by book, team teaching, they went from Genesis all the way through the entire Old Testament. They didn't go as slow as I would go, okay, just so you know. So this wasn't like over 40 years, but they, were, they, they taught at a normal pace maybe uh, through the entire Old Testament. Then they kept on going to Matthew, all four of the Gospels. They went on to Acts through Paul's letters and the general letters. But when they came to the book of Revelation, that is actually where their journey ended. Because the pastor of that church stepped in at that point and informed them that they were not allowed to teach the book of Revelation. And I don't know if it was just his personal policy or what, but the pastor explained to them that he did not want any teaching from the book of Revelation in the church because nobody really knows what it means. Well, That was a revelation to these Sunday school teachers. And they said to themselves, so we're in a church where we're actually not allowed to teach or preach the whole counsel of God. 
and they said, we better start looking for another church. Now, I, I want to give this pastor every benefit of that. I'm sure uh, if anybody cared to think about me, there's some pastor taught in some pulpit preaching against something I did or said, okay? So I'm not, I'm not trying to throw this pastor under the bus. He was a really nice man and everything. And I want to give him every benefit of the doubt. Maybe there, in that church in the past, there was this major tension over the interpretation. And in his ministry at that time, he just thought it was best to say, let's not talk about it right now. It's, it's not healthy for the church uh, right now. And because there, there are some people that really get cranked up about what revelation actually means. Do you think I'm cranked up? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about they're like, they get angry about it. Maybe he simply didn't want the book taught on the Sunday school level. Maybe he meant, you know, I want to handle it myself so I can have control over what is being said about it from the pulpit. But either way, I find it striking that out of all the books of the Bible, some of which contain some very tricky passages, Revelation was the one book that was off limits precisely because of the difficulties it presents to the interpreter. And I have to say that pastor's concern is not without warrant because in the history of interpretation of Revelation, there have been all kinds of, of incredible claims made about where this text is pointing us and showing us to go and what it tells us to believe about the time that we're in. The book of Revelation has been used to show that the next event on God's timetable is the rapture of the church. That's what I think. And by others, it has been used to show that there's going to be three and a half years of tribulation and then the rapture is going to come by others to show that there's going to be seven years of tribulation and then the rapture is going to come. And some have used the book of Revelation to say that there's not going to be any real rapture until the very end and then Christ's going to come for everybody at once. There's going to be no millennial kingdom, nothing like that. There's just going to be the new earth and that's that. And everybody uses the same text to try to prove their version of what's going to happen. The book of Revelation has also been used to... Uh, tell what historical realities the symbols of Revelation correspond to, what these symbols mean in our time historically. For example, who exactly is this prostitute, this woman riding the beast? Martin Luther, along with many of the other reformers, including John Calvin, were pretty certain it was the Roman Catholic Church. But there have been recent interpretations that are even more sensational. Forgive me for saying some of these, but I just want to let you know the range of ideas that are out there. Some have said that the woman riding the beast is none other than the pop star Madonna, who apparently has a video called The Beast Within. Okay? Others say they, th- they think it might be the former first lady Hillary Clinton with a play on her first name, which I will not go into, Another have, others have said that it is uh, the first lady, Michelle, Michelle Obama, who this was apparently suggested by none other than Franklin Graham in an interview where he pointed out that Michelle liked to wear red and she actually drives around in a limousine that's nicknamed the Beast, okay? I'm not making this up. Probably a lot of us have had vehicles nicknamed the Beast or something like that, okay? But, but that's what they, they called their limousine. Now, in more serious reflections, it is also popular to see the beast as none other than the United States of America, steeped in luxury 
and immorality, represented by none other than a lady who stands in New York Harbor. They say that the Statue of Liberty was modeled after the goddess Ishtar, who is none other than the Babylonian goddess of love and fertility. And the symbol of an ancient cult that practiced prostitution was part of its worship. And what about the beast? The Antichrist. Who is that? If you study this question in the history of interpretation, you will find no shortage of suggestions. Napoleon, Hitler, Saddam Hussein, Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, Benito Mussolini, Franklin Delano Roosevelt because of his vision to expand, uh, to, to, to form the United Nations, Henry Kissinger, more, than la- more lately, um, Barack Obama is the beast. And, and you laugh at that, but I mean, he actually brought that up in a, in a news conference once. He said, some people think I'm in the Antichrist. And of course, everybody laughed. Some people were not laughing <laughs> at that point, uh, but a lot of people laughed at that. And the list goes on with those who at one time, at least on a widespread popular level somewhere, were thought to be the Antichrist or acting under his influence. And there have been no shortage of ways in which people have defended their view. I want to show you one example with Napoleon. Napoleon was trying to conquer Europe, if not the world, and put it under his control. And the mark of the beast, it is said, was that he compelled all of his soldiers to wear the French cockade. That's that little circle of red, white, and blue. They would have to wear it on their hats, so it would technically be on their foreheads, right? or on their sword hilt, so it would be technically at their palms when they would grab their sword, just like Revelation talks about, the mark of the beast. And it was demonstrated at the time, this is, this is going back to, his, to Napoleon's time, that if you allow the letters to stand for numbers, as they often do in languages, that there are two ways to make the name of Napoleon add up to the number 666 the mark of the beast. Uh, if you say he is Le Emperor Napoleone, I don't know how to speak French, but something like that, uh, it adds up to 666. If you uh, call him the impious King Napoleon, that also adds up to 666. But of course, you can do this with numerical numbering with almost anything. In fact, take the phrase cute purple dinosaur. Now, this only works if you're doing it in Latin, so you have to change the U's to V's. You see what I did there? Okay. And then uh, you have to lift out the numbers, the Roman numbers there, and then you have to add them up. And of course, if you add all of these up, what do you think you get? Of course, you get 666. So there you have it. Barney is the Antichrist, (laughs) if you follow this line of reasoning. But the whole point of this is that the study of Revelation can easily degenerate into these kinds of sensational talking points, with exception of the last illustration, obviously. We can get caught up in looking at the book merely as a kind of inspired crystal ball that can be used to determine details about the future. But while there is certainly a right kind of fascination with the prophecies given to us here, I mean, why else did God give them to us? There's also an appropriate response that we should have when we're reading Revelation, especially a section of Revelation with so much detail in its symbolism. That's why my big idea I introduced last week uh, to help us examine these three chapters is that there are several appropriate responses implied in these chapters that allow us to uh, 
read the text and have it minister to us in the way the Lord intended. What are these responses? Well, the first one is be wise. The second, be assured. Be warned, be joyful, and worship God. We're going to walk through every one of those. We're only going to be the first one this morning, and I'll probably finish the first one next week a little bit before we go on to the second. I'll just warn you ahead of time. I want to focus on this first response, be wise. If you will look down to verse 9 of chapter 17, the angel has been describing the woman on the beast, and as he begins to describe the beast itself, he tells John this calls for a mind of wisdom. And this is not the first time we've seen this admonition for wisdom in the book of Revelation. In the last verse of chapter 13, John, in talking about the mark of the beast, says, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Wisdom, or Sophia, has to do not only with the knowledge of facts, the knowledge of the evidence, but with the way we relate the facts to one another and draw significance from them. That is really essential to understand if you're reading Revelation. It's not just the details of the text. It's how they relate to one another, how we relate this to what is going on in our culture, and how we draw the right significance from all of that. Do you know why there are so many people who come up with really crazy ideas about what Revelation happens to be referring to? Because there are so many random facts or pieces of evidence in the world. And there are so many different pieces of evidence in the text. And sometimes people draw on only certain of these facts while ignoring others. Or they overemphasize certain facts and they end up drawing inferences from Scripture to their perception of what is happening in the world and coming up with claims that just cannot stand. Frankly, it's one of the reasons people eventually do not take seriously someone who holds a literal historical view of the book of Revelation. And I'll show you what I mean. Do kids still do those dot-to-dot pictures you find sometimes looking in the coloring books? Uh, This is a dot-to-dot picture. I've taken out the numbers, okay? Can you tell what this picture is supposed to be? if the numbers are taken out? I'm not sure if you could because I've given this to classes before and I've asked them to trace the dots and try to figure out the picture uh, without the numbers. And these students come up with all kinds of things like from kitchen appliances to, to spaceships. <laughs> There's just lots of things uh, that, that I've seen in the past. So what makes this so difficult? Because you have all the evidence in front of you Why can't you see the right picture? It's simply because you cannot tell for certain how one piece of evidence relates to another so that the proper picture or interpretation can emerge. So then I would tell the class, turn the page over, and on the back, I would have the same dots, but I would have numbers there. So they would start tracing the picture. Now, it still took a minute or two for them to realize what they were tracing. That's how a dot-to-dot works. But then there would be these audible moments in class. Oh, oh, I see. And the picture would emerge. And it would look something like this. 
Now can you see what that picture is? Ah, I heard it. Ah, you know, I heard an audible, uh, and you weren't even tracing it. Now, for those of you who still don't know what this is, because you're a child, (laughs) this is an ancient communication device (laughs) that many of us use before the rise of technology. But this picture emerges only when we have the right evidence and the right way that the evidence should be put together. By the way, now that you see that picture, when you look back at the dots, can you see what it is now? You can see it. But that's because you've seen how to read the evidence that's in front of you. And this is highly instructive for us when we come to things like the book of Revelation because there are obviously conclusions that the Lord wants his people to draw from the details of the prophecy, but he does not give us all of the evidence sometimes that we might need to be able to pinpoint exactly the name and place of something he's describing in the book. Remember, for instance, in chapter 10, when the seven thunders sound and the voice of the mighty angel uh, is, is, is heard, and the Lord tells John, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. I would love to know what it was that we can't find out that John knew and he was not allowed to write down for us. So we're dealing with only part of the evidence. There's so much more God could have told us. But second, not everything in the prophecy is explained. Sometimes it is. I'm grateful that the angel says, okay, John, here's what you're looking at. Here's who the, who's who the woman is. Here's who the beast is. And he actually explained for us. It's still a little confusing after that, but it's explained, which is to say that there is some direction as to how to connect the dots, but not all of the dots are numbered. And all of this means that we need to wrestle with the prophecy as it stands, but with great appreciation for the fact that we may not be able to dogmatically relate the prophecy to actual historical events until after the fact sometimes. So with all that in mind, let's let the prophecy itself tell us who this woman is. And I'm just going to go through the first six verses this morning in our time together. Let's begin back at verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. By the way, that's the theme of this whole section, chapters 17 and 18. It's the judgment of this prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Now let's pause there for a minute. This woman is called not just a prostitute, but the great prostitute. Because all of the world's leaders, the kings of the earth, have fornicated with her. And those who live in the territories of these rulers, the subjects of these kings, have also imbibed the wine of her fornication. The whole earth has gone after her. They have become drunk with the wine of her sexual, uh, of her, of her sexual immorality. I, I take that to mean uh, the wine that is her sexual immorality. And if you look down at verse 15, the angel tells John what the waters are upon which the prostitute sits. We don't have to wonder about that. He says that the waters stand for peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. So John's being shown a vision, and and I pointed out this last week, most of the time when a vision is being shown in Revelation, the author points this out. 
He's telling us we should look at the symbols and they mean something bigger than the symbols. And in this point, or in this place, the water stands for peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. So this great prostitute has a seductive and alluring influence over the entire world. From the world leaders who are intimate with her to the people all over the world who also participate in her fornication. But what does this mean exactly? I mean, it doesn't take much imagination to see the way the world is going. And in the last days, there will be a terrible time of intense immorality in the earth. And we we, we all sense that is coming. And it bears up with what scripture says too. But how can all of the kings of the earth actually commit fornication with this woman, much less all of the people on the earth participate in it? What dots are we supposed to connect here? Well, if we set this text in the context of the entire Bible, we find that there is more than one kind of immorality mentioned in the Bible. Prostitution in the Bible is very often a metaphor for spiritual unfaithfulness. In the book of Hosea, as most of you know, Israel is depicted as an unfaithful wife who has committed immorality against her husband. And she has gone off with other lovers. And God says of his people, I, though they are low on me, not my people, they will be on me. They will be my people. I will bring them back. I will love them anyway, he says, after he judges them. Isaiah laments, Jerusalem's sin uh, is like a faithful city who has become a whore. And she who was once full of justice has become this terrible woman. That's what Isaiah says about Jerusalem. There are multiple times this metaphor is used of Israel to describe her sin and idolatry against Jehovah. And if we had time, I would take you through a bunch of texts and just look, let you look at this theme in the Old Testament. A lot of you know it's there. There are also places in the Old Testament where God even uses the metaphor of the prostitute to describe the sins of other nations. Nahum does this with Edom, for example. And Tyre is described as a prostitute. And of course, the picture is that God created not only his people, but all of humankind to love him and serve him and be faithful to him and find their joy in him and him alone, just as a wife promises to be faithful to her husband and to cherish him and find her joy and fulfillment in him alone the rest of her life. There's a lot of weddings every summer, especially when you live near a college campus and, and and no college students. And those vows are going to be taken so often this summer that, that, that they will cling to one another and be faithful to each other as long as they both shall live. That defines our relationship with the world and with God at the same time because they're coming apart from, one another, from everybody else. They're saying, I'm not going to go after her anymore. I'm not going to go after him anymore. I'm going to cling to you only. Nobody comes into the marriage relationship who's looking at it the right way and says, you're just being a bunch of legalists. You know, why, 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 don't, you, why don't you date somebody else while you're married? I mean, that's just kind of odd. No, nobody thinks that way. They're like, what? That's wrong. We're clinging to each other. But for some reason, people come into the church and say, you know, you're being legalist if you say you need to stay away from this and stay away from that. We're not just saying no to everything. We're saying yes to God. We're grabbing onto him and embracing him alone. And we can't do that faithfully while being involved in everything else that God is going to judge. That's a situation 
that we're in. The allurements of the world attract our attention. They draw us away with their deceptive lies, promising rest and fulfillment and happiness apart from God. And when we allow our hearts to be drawn away from loving and serving God only, when we become more concerned with our pleasure and people and possessions and popularity and power or prestige, when we love these things more than God so that our life is actually defined more with these things than with the pursuit of God, then it's not even a question of whether those other things are sinful. We are already living in sin because we are being unfaithful to God. That's why James calls those in the church adulteresses. That's James 4, verse 4. He says, you adulteresses. And then he says this, don't you know that friendship of the world is enmity with God? I mean, that, that's a real extra to say it that way, but that's the inspired word of God. I cannot dabble in other loves apart from my love and devotion to God. So when you choose something else over God, this is so essential. When you choose something else over God, you are not simply making a choice to serve one thing rather than another, to love one thing rather than another, because you already owe your complete love and devotion and allegiance to God who created you and died for you. So when you choose something else over him, it's not a neutral decision. You have to break your loyalty to him in order to go after something else. You are being unfaithful. You are prostituting yourself to something or someone else. Is this the type of prostitution that defines the great prostitute in Revelation 17? I think it is because you already have this idea playing out in the book of Revelation. For example, Jesus warns the church at Thyatira, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. This is obviously metaphorical at the end of that charge there for the kind of thing God is going to do to bring judgment on them who have spiritually practiced adultery. And also back in chapter 14, Verse 4, the 144,000 faithful witnesses. When we covered that chapter, he calls those 144,000 faithful ones, he calls them virgins. And it's a little odd. We're not expecting that. We're like, what would that have to do with anything? Well, in other words, they have remained faithful in following the Lord. They're spiritually virgins. They've not corrupted themselves with the world. And also keep in mind that this wicked woman, this great prostitute we're studying here, stands in contrast when we get to chapter 19 with the Lamb's bride, the pure bride. What does Jesus say about his bride in Ephesians 5? That he might present it to himself, a bride without spot or any blemish, but a pure bride. That's what we're going to see in chapter 19. And that's the contrast to this woman. So this is this is it. This immoral prostitute holds a powerful influence on the earth in that she convinces the world leaders to abandon themselves to the pleasures and possessions and prestige of the world rather than to God. 
And that's why when we get to chapter 18, we'll see this so clearly. When the kings and the other people of the world are there, they're wailing in chapter 18. They're lamenting the fall of this Babylon, this woman. And they are focused on all of the material gain and the earthly prosperity that is now gone They were all drunk with the wealth and power that this world can offer, and they cared nothing for God. And this great prostitute is a picture of that wealth and that power. Now, let's keep reading in verse 3 and see if this interpretation makes sense in the rest of the text. Verse 3 says, He carried me away in the Spirit into a wilderness, so we can show him this vision. And I saw exactly what the angel told him he was going to see. A woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. Now, this seven-headed, ten-horned beast, whom we've already met in earlier chapters, is explained in detail in verses 8 through 14. It's really a passage about the woman on the beast, but he takes a long time to explain the beast here in the middle of this chapter. And we will not get to that until next week, so I'm going to save all of that. Uh, the, the beast we've already seen is, is what we would call the Antichrist. He's identified that way in other parts of Scripture. But what I want you to see here is that the woman is sitting on the beast. And this is significant. It implies at least three things. First of all, it implies that the woman holds some kind of influence over the same territory that the beast holds. They both have power over the earth. We already know from chapter 13 that the beast has political power over the earth. So the power of this prostitute must be a different kind of power. Second, the prostitute on the beast shows that there is some kind of relationship that she shares with the beast. They're in sync with one another in some way, both using the other to accomplish their ends. So the prostitute has aligned herself with the beast. But third, the fact that she is on the beast implies some kind of control or at least some influence on the beast. At the least, the beast cannot go anywhere without taking this woman along with him. And he's going to get very tired of this because by the end of the chapter, he is going to completely destroy this woman. That is the fall of Babylon, the beast destroying this woman. Why would he do that? The answer is in the text. God is going to put it into the heart of the beast and the kings that serve him to do this to the woman. Then they're all going to sit around and and, and lament that they did it. It's evil destroying evil. And it's fascinating to see after today. But let's take a closer look at this woman. Verse 4. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. Two ideas are married together here. First, you see her vast luxury. And second, you see her repulsive filth. And that phrase, repulsive filth, may not be what popped into your mind when you saw this really respectable word, abominations, okay? But that's the idea of that word. It is a terrible word. Her vast luxury is seen in the fact that she wears purple and scarlet, which were the richest materials in that economy. And notice she's adorned, literally she's gilded with gold, she's golded with gold and jewels and pearls, 
Her repulsive filth is seen in the cup she holds. John says it's a golden cup full of abominations, a word that means disgusting and horrifying, sickening, like something dead and rotting that has an unbearable stench. And this is coupled with the impurities of her sexual immorality, which means that what she uses to deduce the world to participate with her lewd behavior as well as the immoral behavior itself is an abominable defense to God and ought to be those who know. It ought to be to those who know God. I I often have thought as I've been looking at this text again and again this week, we don't appreciate how hideous sin is to God. We, we can participate in it sometimes. We don't, we don't smell it like God smells it. We don't see it as God sees it. And it is at this point in the description that John now indicates who or what this woman represents. Look at verse 5. On her forehead was written a name of mystery. Literally, the text reads, on her forehead was written a name, mystery. It could mean that the word mystery is part of the name. If you have a King James Bible or a New King James Bible, that's how they translate it. Mystery Babylon the Great. It could also mean that the name is a mystery in the sense that it is an important truth that is now being revealed by God in the text of Scripture. And personally, that's how I would read it here. This is a mysterious name, the meaning of which is now being disclosed. So what is the name written, tattooed, if you will, if they knew about that kind of thing, on the prostitute's forehead. Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. So, the woman is not an actual woman. The woman in the vision vision represents a city. She represents Babylon. And just in case we're tempted to second-guess this interpretation, the angel speaking to John makes certain to connect the dots at the very end of the chapter. If you skip down to verse 18 of this chapter, it says, and the woman that you saw is the great city, and the great city is a reference to Babylon throughout Revelation, is the great city that has dominion over the king's of the earth. So yes, the prostitute is a city, and she exercises a kind of control over the ruler's of the earth. Now, we have to make sense out of this, but before we do, verse 6 gives us one other piece of information to consider. Something horrifying. John says, and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. This image of being drunk with blood is used by ancient writers, both the writers of the Old Testament and writers of literature outside the Old Testament to describe not just a lot of killing. The metaphor is actually used to depict the sheer euphoria, the joy with which one person or army slaughters another, the rush, the exhilaration, the delight that the conquerors feel at the sight of so many bodies, so much blood spilled, so much human life Lost, not just on the battlefield, but perhaps the slaughter of whole towns or villages, and the creative and grotesque and torturous ways that they could bring people to their deaths. This woman is not only drunk on luxury and immorality, but on brutality, that the killing of those specifically who have embraced Jesus Christ. Now, what does this mean? 
How do we connect the dots? Well, some people think that perhaps the ancient city of Babylon will again be rebuilt and modernized and restored to its former glory so that the prostitute on the beast actually represents the city Babylon in the future. An immoral city that produces much wealth, makes kings and other people rich who participate in her system, who loathes Christianity so that Christians are hunted and destroyed. Okay, maybe, maybe, I don't know. I don't think we actually have to say that has to happen though. Because as you already know, the idea of kings and the people of the earth enriching themselves and acting immorally, turning from God and trying to stamp out the very idea of God and hating Christians and desiring to see them eliminated, that is already a reality in our own world, right? There's nothing that surprises us here. Oh, they're going to start doing that? No, they've been doing it already. It may not be as intense yet as it's going to be, and it may not be as intense here as it is other places, I think that the city is named Babylon in the prophecy for a good reason, though. First, I think the name takes us back to Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel, the original Babylon, the first expression of human government that we know of after the flood. It involved gathering together the people of the earth, if if you read the text, to make a name for themselves. And to practice false worship, that's the, that's the, the ziggurat or the, the, the structure that they're building up to heaven. And the idea is not that it goes so high that, that it's in the clouds like you see in the Sunday school pictures, you know, as you're, as you're growing up. The idea is that they would build it up like at, at a triangle uh, part at the top and they thought the gods would come down and they would have sacrifices up there at the top and the gods would stoop down and they were coming up and together they would worship. Left to themselves, this is what fallen people do. They don't worship the God of heaven. They make a name for themselves and worship somebody else. And when the Lord God confused their language at Babel and dispersed them throughout the earth, the people went north, south, east, and west, creating other kingdoms where they sought to make a name for themselves and amass wealth and worship something or someone other than the God who created them. It's spread out. And when God reached down into one of those pagan cities called Ur of the Chaldeans, He told Abraham to leave that city, get out, and to follow him to some other place and to trust him so that through him he could bring blessing to the earth and not just judgment. And this is what God has been doing ever since. He has been calling people to come out of the city, to come away from the commitments of the city and the affluence, and the immorality, and the false worship that subverts the worship of the true God. And throughout human history, there has always been a Babylon or Babylons in the world. Cities or nations or cooperative political systems who celebrate wealth and immorality, who push the true God out of every sector of society and punish those who refuse to cooperate with their system, namely those who love and follow and worship the true God. Now, We know what that city is in John's day. It's Rome. In fact, I already explained last week that the name Babylon was a kind of code that Christian people used in the first century to speak of Rome. Peter himself, at the end of 1 Peter, refers to Rome as Babylon. If the events in Revelation would have been fulfilled soon after John's day, Rome could have easily embodied everything that this prophecy is telling us. 
Rome enforced the worship of false gods across the known world, especially the worship of the emperor. And they were known for their wealth and power and influence. And their Caesars delighted in the slaughter of Christians, several of them, sending them into the arena, crucifying them, burning them alive, tying animal skins to them and setting the wild beast on them for fun. They were drunk with the blood of true believers. So what is this city in Revelation 17? Is it Rome? Is Rome going to rise again to its former glory in the end time? No, I don't think it has to be quote-unquote Babylon or quote-unquote Rome per se. In fact, by using the name Babylon and not Rome, the prophecy is actually letting us know that it will be a city like Babylon or a city like Rome. In fact, maybe a league of cities or a system of some kind of power. I don't know. But it will embody everything that John is being shown here. You might think then, why doesn't God just give us the name of the actual city or the actual system of cities or whatever it is? I've asked myself that question many times in studying through Revelation. Why doesn't he say just a little bit more? So I think it's a good question worth contemplating. But I think one of the answers is that the Lord leaves some of the specifics hidden so that we, his people, are always vigilant. So that We are always being wise so that we are always being thoughtful, connecting the dots, wondering in every generation, is this the Babylon to come? That's why there are sometimes claims that Christians have made in former generations that get very popular. And they are always thinking, well, maybe this is it. Maybe this is how it's going to happen. We, we, sign of, we, we kind of smile at some of those sometimes, but back in the day, like for instance, when Napoleon was taking over the world, it was a pretty serious thing. And it showed that believers were reading the scripture, taking it seriously and trying to apply it to their time. And we should be wise about what this prophecy says because we should always be anticipating the Lord's return. I think we would all agree on that, but we should also be equally wise about this Babylon that we live in, which arises out of the world, the immoral world of buying and selling, a world of distractions. I don't think that most Christians today, especially here in the U.S., appreciate the Babylon of our own time the way we should. We don't see it as a threat. In fact, we often enjoy its fruits. Sometimes they're blessings from God that that ironically come through that. We might not feel this way if we lived in a country that was much more hostile to Christianity, that was more Babylon-like in that area. But here, we actually participate in Babylon's system to some extent by buying and selling in, in, in the enjoyment of the affluence. And the danger for us, I think, is that we can allow the fruits of Babylon to displace our number one love. We, we're always in danger of false worship when we live in Babylon. Not only that, we can be lulled into a sense of security that Babylon likes us. But make no mistake, Babylon is no friend of believers in Christ. They love it when you participate in their commerce. When you upgrade your iPhone, they're great with that, okay? If you 
believe them when they say your clothing is now out of style and that was like last year's style and you had to need a, a whole new wardrobe and, and start spending money in those kinds of areas or that paint color is bad or, or, or that furniture looks outdated, whatever. They love it when you participate in that because you're enriching them. You're spending money. That's how the commerce works. And most of our government, is the conversation is about money. But try to graciously say no thank you to Babylon and see what happens. Try to explain to Babylon why your store cannot in good conscience bake a cake to celebrate a homosexual wedding. Try to explain why you are all for the kind of justice the Bible speaks of, but you cannot go along with the contemporary social justice agenda and see what kind of reaction you get. Jesus promised that in the world we would have persecution. He could probably have said, in Babylon you will have persecution. And if we are not experiencing it, it's only because they think we're playing along or we haven't said no to them too loudly or God forbid we've become too much like them. That's the danger of living in Babylon. And it's one of the reasons we have to read this prophecy wisely and be wise about our time. There's a lot of wisdom yet to come in these chapters. And I pray that God will continue to teach us what it is to live now in this world. Father, thank you.